0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take us deeply into Lent in Jesus' name. Amen. Lent gives us a chance to recognize that when we give our heart to things that cannot or will not love us back, we will never be happy and we will always feel like there is something missing in our life. Lent is not for everybody, if you need proof. So last Wednesday night, I had to fly out right after the Ash Wednesday service and fly all the way to Denver for my parents-in-law's memorial service. I had forgotten to wash my face. While I was at the airport, no less than a dozen people walked up and said, you got a black smudge on your forehead. By the way, I had a cross as well as a heart. That just told me that those individuals aren't part of the Lutheran, Catholic, Anglican, or Episcopalian faith because, well, they would have known about ashes on Ash Wednesday. Oh, they probably understood Mardi Gras and Shrove Tuesday and all of the donuts and malasadas. They just didn't understand what happened on Wednesday. Now... There isn't a Peanuts Lent special, no How the Grinch Stole Easter, certainly no Black Friday sales. There aren't even any decorations unless you covered all your furniture in sackcloth and threw the barbecue ashes everywhere in your house. Lent is the one church festival that us liturgical believers pretty much get to ourselves. Our culture has no idea what to do with a day that celebrates that we came from dust, we're going to return to dust, that we are sinners, and we're going to die. You see, even though much of the world believes in evolution, they still don't like to be told that they came from dust. They also believe dying is something that science will someday cure, even though, by their own estimates, it, it hasn't been able to create the perfect human, let alone cure dying after billions of years. But, but they said science will, will get there. Admitting we're sinners may not be politically correct, but it is spiritually important. I recognize we live in a world that has self-esteem and identity problems, which is why they think admitting their sin is just going to make things work. So they say, we shouldn't even talk about it. And by the way, on the other side, the church often uses sin as a giant club to wield against anyone and everyone who doesn't agree with them, which in and of itself, by the way, is a sin on behalf of the church. And don't even get me started on the evils of Christian nationalism. And maybe that's why most people just don't do Lent. If we are willing to stop and take a deep breath and listen to God, we will be able to take the first steps to understanding our relationship with Him and why sin is not the defining characteristic that we often think it is. Because we are humans and because we are on this side of heaven, we cannot avoid sin. In fact, it is impossible not to sin. You can try and try and try not to sin, and you are going to fail over and over and over again. You see, original sin, the kind of sin that we are born with, isn't sin as in doing or thinking something. It's a systematic rebellion that goes all the way down to our core. It's a rebellion against God. In the simplest terms, original sin, self-centeredness. If we have to choose between God or neighbor and ourselves, we will most often choose ourselves. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that for deep, dark theologians to ponder over, but I think you get the point. It's why St. Paul said, the good I should do, I do not do, but the evil I should not do, I find myself doing, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. Now, I want to point out, it was St. Paul who said that. If an apostle is struggling with sin, why is it that some of us think that we could actually do better? Now, believe it or not, accepting that we're sinners isn't the real problem. Uh, most, people, most people actually get that. They may not want to say it out loud, but inside, they, they, they kind of know it. In those moments when they're all alone. You see, the real problem is they stop there. They stop at the, I don't want to tell anyone, or I don't want to admit that I'm a sinner. If you ever played on a merry-go-round, you understand a little bit about physics, at least centrifugal force. You climb on, and at first everything's okay. But as it begins to spin faster and faster, centrifugal force starts to take over. Now, if you can remain perfectly in the center, and and by the way, that that whole center part is very, very small, then you're safe. You're going to be dizzy, but you're going to be safe. But if you step even one inch outside the perfect center, those forces work to fling you off into the dirt and the rocks. You can try to hang on. But the forces, well they aren't going to let up. And eventually, when you get tired, you'll find yourself out in the dirt and the rocks. Now, the problem of sin doesn't end there. The reason Jesus kept pushing forgiveness and even went so far as to say, you know, if you don't forgive others when they sin against you, uh, the Heavenly Father will not forgive you when you sin. It's because sin is not as simple as the individual act of sin itself. There is always a lot more if we're willing to look beneath the surface. Let's use the gospel lesson as an example. Jesus asked the disciples who people think he is. Now, the question is not a popularity poll so that he can tweak his message and uh, gain more followers. No, this is a Socratic teaching method, asking questions and letting the disciples work it through for themselves so they arrive at the answer rather than just being told. See, Jesus already knows the answer. He needs the disciples to figure it out. Disciples report everything they heard around the water cooler and the gossip chain. Well, they think you're one of the dead prophets that came back to life. And then Peter shouts, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. Jesus notes Peter didn't come to this conclusion on his own, that God the Father revealed it to him. No big surprise there. But now that they know who he is, Jesus says, well, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, they're going to be fulfilled. I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to die But on the third day, I'll rise again. Peter chastises Jesus and says, This will never happen to you. Because we were all born in a sinful world, we tend to try and make ourselves the center of the universe, or at least the center of the merry-go-round, pushing away centrifugally all from our center, everything and everyone who does not agree with us. As long as we are the center of things... Everything we don't like will go flying off into the dirt and rocks. At least that's the theory. When Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, saying because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men, Jesus is reminding Peter that he is not the center of the universe. In fact, he's not the center of the world, the center of the church, the center of his home, or even the center of himself. And unless he holds tight to God, who is the center of all things, he's going to go flying off, not just into the dirt and rocks, but the nothingness of hell. Jesus came to save the world from a lot more than war, hunger, poverty, disease, and hatred. He actually came to save us from ourselves. See, and this is where religions and non-religions and make-believe religions widen the gap between them and anything that doesn't agree with their own views or beliefs. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated, but I'm boiling it down to the fact that Jesus had to come because he knew that we were always going to choose something that wasn't him. Now, while one end of the church tells us that sin is an antiquated notion that makes us feel bad about ourselves, so we should avoid ever mentioning it, there is another end of the church that says that we need to work really, really hard to sin less and less and less until we become sinless except because it's impossible for us to become sinless while we're at least on this side of the world, which, by the way, the Bible is very clear about, But so they should have known that, but which they're trying to ignore. They are forced to change God's rules so it only looks like they're sinning less and less. And, and these thought processes lead to ever-splintering fragments of believers and wannabe believers who then begin to define sin as something that other people do. The things they do, not sin. The people... Uh, well, that don't agree with them, they're the sinners. So Jesus was hanging out with the Pharisees and Sadducees one day, and they were trying to impress him with just how holy they really were. With one offhand comment, Jesus ripped their souls out. He said, you know, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. By the way, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. You see, they thought they had created the perfect religion, one that agreed with everything they agreed with and disagreed with everything that they disagreed with. And now Jesus comes in and says, you know, God actually has something to say about all that. When sin is boiled down to low self-esteem or something we can control or limit or edit, it becomes an unsolvable problem that leads to an unlivable life. In our epistle lesson, St. Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Let that soak in for just a second. While we were still sinners, in fact, while we were still sinning, God sent his son to die for us. He didn't wait until we got our act together. He just saved us. There can be great hope and healing in admitting our mortality and our brokenness. You see, when we finally lay aside our sin management programs and excuses and denials and simply allow God to be God, amazing things are possible. See, as long as we think that we're the center of the universe and the church and our family and our own lives, there's actually no hope we're going to get flung off into the dirt and rocks. And by the way, if you think it was hard just hanging on to the merry-go-round as it spun faster and faster, try getting back on a merry-go-round when it's going full speed. What Lent does for us is remind us that we're mortal, that we are going to die. And we can spend our whole life trying to avoid it or delay it, but that's just time that we're wasting when we actually could be out living it. And when Lent proclaims we're sinners, it doesn't leave it at that. It loudly and proudly proclaims, we have a Savior. When the prophet Nathan confronted King David with his sins, David went off and wrote Psalm 51. You don't desire sacrifice or I'd bring it. You want me to know the truth deep inside me. Well, that's the journey of Lent. We don't need to run away from God or our sins. We can actually run toward God, even though we're sinners. This is not a season of self-denial or giving things up or suffering. At least it doesn't have to be. You see, it can be a season of relinquishing our sins, our pains, our fears, and our anxieties. Those things, by the way, that are the trappings that cause us a lot of sleepless nights. We let go of all the pretenses and delusions. We stop defending ourselves. And we just let go of our selfishness. There is no shame in the truth of who we are. The broken and yet blessed miracles of God. There is no shame in the truth that our lives on earth will end someday. There is no shame that we are sinners and we cannot not sin. It doesn't have to be depressing. You see, what's depressing is trying to pretend otherwise. What's depressing is when we try and try and try even harder and still fail. One of the keystone verses for Lent is from the prophet Joel. Now, he's a minor prophet, which just means that his book was really, really short, just three chapters His Lenten advice to us, which came straight from the lips of God, is this. Even now, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to me. For I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love, and I relent from sending disaster. God says to return to him with all of our heart right now, not when we finally get our act together During Lent, we tend to focus on our behavior, giving things up, sacrificing things, trying to sin less. And there's nothing wrong with that if we're doing it for the right reason, which, by the way, is simply a response to God's love, not a bribe or some sort of act so that everybody thinks we're holy. You see, God has something very different in mind for this season because our problem is not chocolate. It's not too much sugar. It's not spending too much time on our phones. It's not not doing enough for our neighbor and not being a good enough parent or spouse or friend. You see, our real problem is trying to love things that cannot or will not love us back. And as long as we keep trying to find ourselves in all of that stuff that we do, we will never be healed or whole or feel like we're worthy. When God says, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, tear your hearts, not just your clothes. It's that tear your hearts part that really matters. Because we're already tearing our heart just for the wrong reason. We're really good at doing things to look holy or sound holy. So people wind up saying, aren't they wonderful? Oh, if I could only be more like them if they only know who we really were. We're really good at doing things to look holy or sound holy. But if we're doing these things and loving all these things just so we can get noticed, just so we can bribe God, just so we can think that we've done enough or more than enough that God has to love us, well, we've been tearing our heart apart and the pieces have been flung out into the dirt and rocks, which is why none of all the things that we did have ever made us feel better. In fact, they just made us feel worse. God wants to gather up all the pieces of our hearts that we gave away so that he can restore us. He wants to give us a heart of flesh and blood. That that heart beats for him. And the only way that can happen is for us to repent, to step into his presence and say, I'm sorry. And by the way, we don't step into his presence. He draws us into his presence. And we say, I'm sorry. No excuses, no denials, no caveats, no promises that we aren't going to be bad anymore. You know, every moment of our life becomes an opportunity to return to God. By the way, if your mind wanders during prayers or the Apostles' Creed, return to God. If you say or do something you promised that you would never do again, return to God. If you find yourself somewhere that you aren't supposed to be, you can return. If you become someone that you know you shouldn't be, you can return. You see, God never said three strikes or not even 3,000 or 3 million or three Googleplex and you're out. No, he said, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, Return to me, for I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and I am rich in faithful love. We are baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And even though St. Paul says, daily we die with Christ, and then we rise again to a new life, it's actually more like dying and rising every single moment of our lives. And by the way, if you can wrap your heart and soul and mind around that, the whole dying and rising a million times in your life, Suddenly death isn't as scary and neither is coming before God and telling him we're sorry. Not because he actually is going to believe us when we say we're never going to sin again, but because we discover that God really is compassionate, slow to anger, and more than abundant with his love and grace. To repent isn't so much doing something as it is something that happens to you as God wraps his arms around you and heals your heart and forgives your soul. True repentance isn't about looking at the past and saying, I can't believe I did that. Or, you know, what was I thinking? And then blubbering, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, over and over again. No, true repentance is God pointing to your future, which, by the way, always begins the moment he begins pointing. And now you are a forgiven and restored and unique and unreproducible miracle. And you get to say, wow, God, thank you. And understanding, by the way, that not only is that the first step in your new life, but it's probably going to happen a thousand more times in that day alone, let alone a billion times in your life, where where God says, let's forget the past. Let me show you your future. And yes, that moment's going to happen over and over again a million times, because that's why they call it grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.